Episode 94 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you join us for the first time, we're a podcast about role-playing in the 41st millennium. Using the gaming systems now created by Ulysses North, we've also covered the older FFG and Black Industries games in the past. Every episode we talk a bit about the game, what's currently the development of the game in any case, but uh, as we move into a actual release, we'll start talking about systems and background and just some basic role-playing concepts as well. So even if you're not a big uh, 40k role player, hopefully you still get a bit out of our, our show. It has been quite some time since we last got together, so uh, you might recall if you listened to episode 93, it was me on my own, because Mike at the time was in Brazil, Yep. and then Mike got back from Brazil just in time for me to head to New Zealand Yep. Uh, for a family holiday, uh, which I'd finally gotten back from. I'm just about to head away for another two weeks of, of work trips now, so I thought let's really get in and uh, get up to say when we get a chance, because my sort of May and June uh, travel has been pretty expensive, which on the good side, I actually found out uh, in this last sort of few weeks that I've been asked to go to the US for a meeting in the first week of June, yeah. uh, and that actually coincided nicely with two dates, because the weekend after I'm there for work, Games Workshop opened their first Citadel Center in the US. Ah, yeah. Dallas. So I'm heading down to Dallas to, uh, uh, to attend the opening of the Citadel Center, uh, which is going to be one of the bigger sort of events in, in continental North America. And uh, hopefully, I've actually heard rumors that you've, you've seen in White Dwarves, they have the exclusive things you can only buy at Warhammer World, like the Command Rhino, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. I've heard rumors they might actually be having some of, of that sort of stuff there. Plus, they've got the regular store opening exclusive miniatures as well. So hoping to pick up some of those. Uh, but also, the week after that is Origins in Ohio. So I wasn't planning to get along to Origins originally, which where there will be a pre-release of the game. So an opportunity to play Wrath and Glory at the con. So I've actually managed to get tickets to um, uh, to, to that event, to Origins, and uh, got my flight to organize through work. So I'll actually be managing to cover what we hear about Wrath and Glory from Origins as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so nice little sort of boon come through in the way of uh, some work anyway. Uh, but what about um, gaming recently? I suppose there hasn't been a lot of gaming because of travel. I mean, I managed to get a game of Numenera in, running a game of Numenera between the last show and now, and I think we did manage to play one Dungeons and Dragons between me, you coming back and me going away. Yeah. Uh, and as it stands, we're actually going to be playing D&D again tomorrow night. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's been... Really, it for our, our stuff. I think we were talking via Facebook recently that our D and D group has got to the point where money is irrelevant now, almost. Like just, 
they said that, but they talked about what they spent their money on. They spent it on crap when there's so many better things for each one of them to buy. They've just gone, oh, I'll, I'll buy this. and They have no idea. They don't know how to spend money in D&D. Yeah, I mean, so with that game, it gets to a point. So I remember from when I was running a D&D LARP, and I had one player join the game. Quite a nice guy, but he was very much your typical power gamer. Yeah. And... You know, we had to do some sort of... Uh, so this is, this is for comparison. We know 3rd at D&D, we're talking 3rd at D&D. He wanted to bluff somebody. I'm like, okay, so we're going to do a bluff check. What's your bluff plus? Plus 76. And I'm, I'm like, seriously, how is that? And he went through all the various bonuses and things. He'd worked out all these untyped bonuses that add together and, you know, all the spells he had cast and the magic items he'd bought and that sort of stuff. And, and yeah, it came out mathematically to plus 76. And I said to him, look, I appreciate you. That, that's all right. But it's not in keeping with the spirit of the game. You know, the, the spirit of the game is that you know, it's a D20 plus you know, for a high level character, you know, 15, 16 and such. You know, if you, plus 70 is ridiculous. Uh, like the, the, obviously, the other player is not going to have a sense of anywhere near that as such. So um, I, I sort of caution on the fact that, yes, while you can break the rules, there is a, a conflict of intent. And I'm sort of un, unsure with our current D&D game because we have really gone off and just broken the rules. We haven't oh, really yeah. played... Yeah. To the intent. Oh. So, yeah, I'm sure, you know, with the, with the amount of money that we picked up in, in Darren's game, we can certainly buy absolutely ridiculous equipment. Um, but it's sort of getting to the point where, as I said, in, I think, in a previous show, sometimes we've had fights where in order to give us an opponent that's tough enough for us to be challenged by, Darren's got to give us an opponent which we're actually getting our experience from because the game system tells us that fight should be impossible. Yeah, but some of that comes down to tactics of the GM as Yeah, well. that's um, true. You, you know... We fought against a Beholder recently, and I'm sure everyone knows what a Beholder is. And it was just used wrong. Yeah. At the end of the day, it was. I mean, it's got an anti-magic zone on it, which it had to close so it could use its spell rays and things. Well, no, it should have come into the middle of the party, anti-magic eye right on the wizard, everyone else to the other sides, and just blasted us. Yeah, and also worked because it, it, it wasn't a beholder on its own. There was other no, stuff around as well. There was other so, stuff around as well. Yeah, yeah that's it. And, and that's one of the things where we actually were using a tactical map as well. So uh, you can you can get tactics, real tactics with tactical maps unless you're just sort of you know, thinking, I'm going to attack him, I'm going to attack him. You know, you, but you got to think about placement and lines of sight and auras, that sort of stuff. You know, that yeah. makes it a much more challenging experience. So I, I was actually, I've been talking to Mike recently because for a long while, I wanted to do a, a new game to sort of mix, um, I, I guess, tactical combat like on a map with a sort of character-driven experience as well. Where I, I, I sort of, I've been looking at settings like one of my bases for this was like things like the XCOM computer game or things like BattleTech, where you want to have, um, you know, this sort of controlling experience of being the top-down view. But the game is more built around being the person on the ground, like the you know the, the soldier or the mech warrior, and how can you make that work? And I've been thinking about doing a game where uh, the players control, yeah, you know, the players PCs control whatever it is, the mercenary company, the the research group, whatever the case may be. And when it gets down to the tactical level, the players just assume control of the various soldier resources they've recruited or trained up as such, you know, which are largely expendable. Yeah, because you compared it to Ars Magica, um, which I've yeah. never actually read or played, but I mean, you've had some experience with as well. Yeah, that's that's yeah. sort of a concept, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've got a master wizard, and then you've got henchmen that you send out to gather your resources and, and do 
henchman things. Yeah. I mean, wizards don't go marching into caves and possibly get stabbed by goblins. <laughs> Quite true. So it's a waste of, you know, 40 years of study to do that. So they send people who are trained to do that. Yeah. Like, in real, well, I would say in real life, I suppose wizards don't exist, but, you know, as, as we're fully aware, generals tend not to march into battle very often anymore. They've got experience and tactics and knowledge and things that are more suited to their actual position. Yeah. I feel like they both both stop and point out here, by the way, that we're actually, for the first time, recording at Mike's place. Yeah. And if you hear some sudden heavy breathing in the background, it's because Mike's dog has managed to join us uh, for, for the recording. Yes, so Mag- Magnus. <laughs> No, no, not getting, uh, we're not getting too excited here, we're just, uh, we've got a dog with us. Um, but going back to just general gaming news as well, uh, Mike, have you seen that um, it looks like the Vampire the Masquerade license has changed hands? Yes, they're doing a new 5th edition. Through Modiphius, yeah. who, you know, who we know from obviously Mutant Chronicles and the new Star Trek RPG, Mutant Year Zero. Uh, yeah, so they're talking about a bit of a, a redesign, but also going back to the roots of the game. Back to what actually made money, you mean? Yeah. Well, it's funny, though, because I was talking to somebody at Gen Con a couple of years ago about the years where the White Wolf World of Darkness series was, like, the dominant force in the role-playing community, and they'd had they'd have things at Gen Con every year, like a, a sort of an in-character vampire bar, that sort of stuff, you know. And the comment the person made to me at the time, I can't remember, it may have, it may have even been Ross Watson at the time I was talking about, this, was it the, the sort of... The community aesthetic has moved on from that, you know. So in the in the in the mid to late nineties, the sort of the the vampire genre was cool. You know, you had films like you know Interview with a Vampire or um, Queen of the Damned, and um, I guess these sort of concepts. Queen of the Damned was never cool, <laughs> but it was it was still a popular film. At the time. It was still a popular film. Popular with who? Well, people like those sort of films. Okay. But in any case, there was a, a much larger, I guess. The goth scene was very different back then as well, which is probably one of the key drivers. Uh, and I certainly know a lot of people who both identify as goth and as role players. So, yeah. Um, and I think that maybe it's not so much the aesthetic that, the, that is, it's not what the kids are into these days, Mike, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know whether trying to keep reinvigorating Vampire the Masquerade or, or the other derivative games will have any impact on anyone other than old fans coming back to the game again. Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. You, it, it's, they're going to depend if they're going to start targeting the audience of people who come to the vampire genre through the more modern vampire movies and yeah. books, which unfortunately... You know, a bit, a bit of paranormal romance in your role playing game? Well, <laughs> that's unfortunately the target market now. I mean, yeah, you've got the, the, the old edition, original players, but there's a lot less of them than potential new players. Yeah. So they may have to change their target market. Yeah. You know, actually... Um... Uh, for no real reason, uh, I, I suppose. So, so recently, I kickstarted uh, the Good Society role-playing game, um, and, uh, which is this is a, a Jane Austen drive role-playing game, and, and the main reason I, I backed it was because the developers were Australian, yeah, you know, and I'd like to you know I'd like to try and support Australian game developers right then, and just because my wife and some of her friends are quite into that sort of you know that, that Edwardian um, era. And, but and, does and, it have rules for Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies? Uh, because so if it, it doesn't, it's I, just not worth it. I haven't. I mean, I've, I've, I've backed it, I, I, and it got funded. I didn't I haven't actually downloaded anything, but it does have derivative campaign information for, like I said, this is pure, you know, Edwardian England style stuff, but this is like, you know, the same thing with magic and zombies and that sort of stuff, you know, if you wanted to have... That's all right. <laughs> that sort of stuff too. 
Uh, but we digress. <laughs> so, yes. uh, for today's show, uh, it's going to be probably a bit of a shorter one. Once again, we've only got limited stuff to work with in terms of the development of the new game system. I have been trying to organize, once again, the, uh, our chat about the Harlock trilogy. As it stands, one of the players I wanted to include has gone off to the US for a few weeks. So we'll catch up with her again when she gets back and plan it for a future episode. Uh, so today we're just going to be covering off, um, the news. Uh, and obviously what's happening in the development cycle of Wrath and Glory as well. So hopefully you still take something from the show. It has been a while between drinks, uh, but yeah, we wanted to basically bring back to you, come back to you with something and, and keep talking about the game as it's being developed. Yeah. So let's move on to the news. Command knowledge, accessing Imperial archives. So for news, we'll start off with Ulysses North America, and we've actually seen two designer diaries since the last time we did a show. So... The first one was in March, where Ross talked a little bit about the Imperium Nihilus setting for Wrath and Glory. I mean, there's probably not a lot in this particular kind of diary we don't already know from reading you know, what's happened with 40k and the, and the setting there as well. Uh, but it, it gave us an idea that obviously Imperium Nihilus is going to be primarily Imperium focused. Yeah. Yeah. The core book will have materials for other Xeno races like Eldar, like Orcs, also Chaos options as well. Um, but that the main focus will be how the Imperium is recovering from the... Well, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of players out there who are desperate to play Orcs, but the vast majority of players are after playing Space Marines, Imperial Guard, Inquisition, yep. typical 40k but Imperium fair. Every time, every time Ross gives any sort of interview or any sort of public gatherings, there's someone who always asks about Tyranids. Yeah. So, <laughs> Timmy the Tyranid needs to find out that the hive mind's been in him all along. It's like Timmy the Gaunt. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But, um, yeah, so, so that, that, that one was that. Uh, but also in April, we had our first look at the initiative system, which was covered partially in the Eagle Ordinary comic as well. Um, but what we know is that the standard, uh, initiative system is going to be alternating players, GM, players, GM. Yeah. Uh, but that there are resources which exist that allow, for example, the players to move up their action uh, or allows the GM to move up their action as well, potentially taking the first turn in combat. Uh, and we know now from this that there are three resources in the game, Wrath and Glory, which are both player resources, and Ruin, which is a GM resource. Yeah. Um, so that's something that's come out of it. Uh, we also saw that Ulysses North America have created a new Instagram account uh, where they've got some more artwork up for Wrath and Glory. Uh, and on top of that, on both Twitter and Facebook, they released new character art for a Space Marine Scout, which was a Crimson Fist from memory, uh, and also a Road Trader. Yeah. So uh, a couple of new character options there. It's funny, actually, I actually posted onto um, our Facebook page saying, okay, here are all the various uh, uh, images we've had so far. I think it's relatively safe to assume that those are going to be Character archetypes. So there was something like nineteen or so, I think, out of the out of, out of the thirty something we've been promised. Uh, and so I asked players to say what they're looking most forward to, or what else would they like to see in there. And uh, so far, the I think the leading one of interest is this Katari Ranger. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm thinking that rather than just sort of starting alphabetically when we get the new books, we should sort of take some some fan feedback on what what archetypes to cover. And so right now, without knowing what the full list is. This Qatari Ranger is winning. If you want to hear about somebody else, then feel free to jump on to, to Facebook and post your comments as well. Exactly. There's still time for the uh, Timmy's Gaunt. <laughs> if it's in the book. That's it. 
Uh, on Cubicle 7 side, so we've seen the announcement uh, just yesterday, or actually, I think it's actually today because I'm thinking about US date versus Australian date, uh, that the fourth edition of Wine of Fantasy will be available for pre-order very shortly. Yeah. Um, I've actually heard through the grapevine that the release date for it is June 27th. The indicative pricing is 60 US dollars for the core book. Uh, and 30 US dollars for the starter box, whether that includes. So, yeah, it's kind of pricey for for booking. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Th- think about the size, for example, of the original Games Workshop. God, it was um, huge. It was, yeah, it was like almost an inch thick book, you know. So, yeah. if it's, if it's that sort of size, then. Even if probably a good third of it was just career. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, that price, $60, that's more of the Codex cost in the US, I think, for example, as well. Yeah. And, and, but Codex books, they're generally. They're only supplemental source books or size yeah. books, so. Without knowing what's in it, I can't really comment, but $60 does seem a bit, yeah, well, we'll a little see. bit pricey compared to some other book. Yeah, well, and that's also, from my understanding, RIP. So I, I know um, that a lot of gaming stores don't necessarily just follow RIP or have their own discounts too, so we'll see what, what other time the stores. Um, what do they call it? Uh, it could be ma- maximum suggested retail price. MSRP is the is a term that, that retailers use today. Actually, uh, let, let, let me let me say one more thing. I'll come back to that. The other thing I was going to say about Cubicle Seven is that um, uh, we've seen no further word on Age of Sigma role playing. In fact, some of the pages they had about Age of Sigma role playing are no longer on their website. I know, so okay. or they're not linked from the main bar. You've got to search for them. So I don't know if that's just a in, uh, just a. They might be getting put together sure? a page specifically for it, or could a website be. specifically yeah, for be, it. So. You never know. Um, yeah. So before I jump onto Gay's workshop, I, I'm going to have, even though you didn't want this conversation, like I'm going to have this conversation because it's something that um, I've seen a bit of recently. Uh, so, well, first off, so I went across to New Zealand as I mentioned, and while I was there, I thought I'm going to go looking around at in my spare time, I little spare time I had around with my three kids, at a couple of gaming stores. Yeah. Uh, and. I thought, I thought about going to Games Workshop in Auckland when I was there, and I thought, probably not a lot of point because, yeah, gee, I've always heard that New Zealand is more expensive than Australia. And looking at the, uh, their web, their web page, you know, factor in the exchange rate, yep, everything is more expensive there than it would be to buy in a Games Workshop here. Um, but because, from what I know of Games Workshop, from independent retailers in Australia, I don't know of any independent re- retailers that sell at the same price as GW's retail. They all seem to sell yeah, 10, 15% below that. So I go to the GW store quite often because I want to support the store, you know, and I buy quite a bit there. So I'll tend to buy things like box sets there. So I bought my Forge, um, Forge Bane there, Dark Imperium there, for example. But I'll shop around at other little stores when it comes to getting bits and pieces. Also because some of those stores stock web-only products from GW as well. Or stuff that's been discontinued. Also it's been discontinued, exactly right. And and I noticed even in my local GW store there's a whole there's a whole shelf there of things that are going web only, including like Necromunda. The whole Necromunda set's going web only shortly. Uh, whereas a lot of those retailers will keep those in stock. Uh, so I did I did quickly check the uh, Games Workshop New Zealand website to see is there anything that they do keep in store in New Zealand they don't keep in store in Australia. Because for example after some I have got no striking scorpions yet my Yola. Um, but all the in-store stock in New Zealand was equal all the in-store store stock in Australia. But I did find a couple of independent retailers um, in and around Auckland that I visited, one of which um, was a, a very sort of a, a mixed gaming and hobby store. So they had things like vinyl superhero figures and 
you know, games and puzzles and you know, it was a whole sort of general hobby store. Um, but they had this literally one whole wall of their of their uh, store was Games Workshop and they were trying to reduce their stock holding a little bit. So they did a, first off, all their New Zealand dollar pricing was equal to the Australian dollar RRP for GW. So factor in the exchange rate, there's about an 8% saving there. And then they had buy one model, get 10% off, two models get 15% off, three or more models get 25% off all GW. So I just picked up three things I wanted. I was limited what bag space I had. So between the 8% break on the, the exchange rate and then the 25% discount for that, I'm getting about 30% off the price you pay in a GW, which I'm not going to get from any retailer here. Yeah. So I was happy with that. In fact, what I bought was, um, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show previously, I mentioned it to you that time I was really bored at work and did the whole pivot table of um, like, you know, dollar cost of models to points cost in the game. Yeah. Uh, so I actually bought the worst, the absolute worst model when it comes to points cost versus real world cost. Like, uh, Stern God Factions? No, 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 the, um, the Primaris Apothecary. Oh. Yeah, 60 Australian dollars for like 56 points or something, or maybe 64 points. I think it was like 96 nice. cents per point. I, thought, um, I think gargoyles are well up there as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but I will say it was actually a very nice model to build. I I, I really like that model. You know, despite the fact it's a single model. Um, but anyway, getting back to the whole point was the topic once again came up on a Facebook group I watched called the Imperium of Man, where someone's pointed out, oh, how much does it suck? How much Games Workshop stuff costs in Australia slash costs in New Zealand slash costs in the US versus England, all this sort of thing. Supply and demand. Supply and, and yeah, you know, once again someone. St- spoke up and said, oh, I've spoken to my local games workshop and they've said that, you know, it's to do with wages, it's to do with shipping and warehousing, etc. Um, and the other was saying, oh, that's BS and, you know, they're just gouging us. And I felt the need to post. I actually did like quite a, quite a long post. I probably should have put a TLDR at the bottom of the post as well. Um, but I basically said, look, here's the thing. So I, I come from a job. My job today is uh, in, in the import and sales of the international product field. And yes, I worked for Games Workshop in the past. When I worked for Games Workshop, I wasn't privy to price decisions though. So everything I'm saying now, I'm saying as, as an Australian who buys Games Workshop stuff and as a person who imports stuff into Australia and New Zealand. And so the thing is that, that in every single country, you have this thing called market factor, right? And market factor is derived from all sorts of things. It can be duties and taxes employed by the government. It can be GPD. It can be wage growth. You know, all these things that affect consumer confidence. And market factor is used by international companies to determine how do I modify the cost of my item to sell it into a different market. So I can guarantee you that a Big Mac in Australia costs more than a Big Mac in India. Uh, and India's sim- cheapest Big Macs in the world. Yeah, well, they're also their chicken Big Macs there too. But, yeah. but okay, compare it to say a, a Big Mac in Malaysia, for example, if you want to talk about a beef-based Big Mac. Um, yeah, yes, it's, it's more expensive here. And... That's a part point of market factor. Yep, there are different costs in terms of the ingredients in those countries. But at the end of the day, the average person that wants to buy a Big Mac in Australia is willing to pay more than the average person who wants to buy a Big Mac in India. Um, and I've seen whole charts about how many Big Macs you get for one US dollar or five US dollars in each country, you know, and, and so it, it ranges from like 13 down to half, you know, if you look at across the various countries of the world. Um, so yeah, you've got this market factor thing. Now, any company which makes money uh, does so not because they say this is what goods cost us to make. 
therefore we add a percentage and we sell it for that. You know, a, a cost plus model. Business is built around a market minus. The market is prepared to pay X. You know, I'm prepared to drop my margin down from the market expectation in order to secure market growth. That's my target sell price. Um, there's something called a Goldman table where if you sell goods that have a certain percentage of profitability, you can say, if I reduce my volume of sales by X amount, I need to, sorry, if I reduce my, my, sorry, my margin of sales or my price by X amount, but my costs remain fixed, I need to increase my volume of sales by a different amount in order to achieve the same profit turnover at the end of the day. Uh, and it can be quite amazing. Without knowing what GW's profit factor per product is, we can assume it's high because I know that in 2016 on the London Stock Exchange, the FTSE ratings Games Workshop had one of the highest profit percentages per uh, against revenue, not not dollar value or pound value, but you know as a percentage of revenue, um, because they have a high margin product. But you can say that if they drop their price by ten percent, for example, they might need to increase their volume by thirty percent just to return the same profitability at the end of the day. And this is a public listed company which has shareholders which care about share value and dividend payment as well. So if they're going to drop down their overall revenue, they need to have a good reason why. You know, often it's about picking up market share. But the thing is that I would say that a 10% drop in Games Workshop pricing would not lead to a growth of 30% in the number of products sold. Um, at the end of the day, the products are the price they are because people pay for them at that price. You know, the only way to sort of get a company to lower its prices is to stop buying, is to stop buying at that price. You know, And I'm not encouraging people to do that by any metric imagination because I certainly buy products from Jake Games Workshop at their current price, and I'm happy with that because I know that's what the market price is. Uh, and yeah, but it's the people who buy the product and then complain about the price uh, are not actually getting, they're never going to get the outcome they want because by buying the product, it justifies its market position because the market, which is you, you're part of the market, pays at that price. Uh, now, when I mentioned this to you before, you were at Greenville's, Mike, but you said if we talk about we're going to get called corporate shields. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're right. I mean, the great unclean one is two hundred and something dollars here in Australia. That's I right. will not pay two hundred dollars for a single model unless it's something the size of a Bane blade. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to buy that new, that new, the new, that new, that new knife when it comes out. For example, that'll, that'll be easily be, I reckon, two eighty, two twenty to two eighty. I'm saying in Australia. Yeah, probably two fifty ish. Yeah. Um. So I haven't purchased one, and I don't think many people have. But some people still are. Yeah. I can guarantee you if no one purchased a great unclean one at $210, next month it would not be priced $210. I know someone who bought two. Yes. <laughs> and they're the reason it costs $210. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, once again, going back to that pivot I did of the points to uh, dollar value, what I found was that, generally speaking, character models like the Primaris Apothecary or named characters tend to be on the worse end of the spectrum of cost versus um, a point because they are a more desirable item. Yeah. And, and they recognize the fact that pe more people are going to want to buy, you know, uh, this than, say, just a regular troop choice. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, um, you know, obsolescence and, uh, you know, created yep. market manipulation, I suppose. At the end of the day, people are going to pay what they have to pay or they're not going to pay. Yeah. But, I mean, GW are pretty good at not doing power creep, I find. I, I've never seen the situation where I said, oh, this model I bought back in 1996 
is just pointless to use now because the models I can buy today are so much better than it. You know, they, they've managed to, I think, relatively well maintain the value of... Yeah, I think they've done a good job of when they bring out a new army, it's not a case that that new army is vastly superior to all other armies. They're, yeah. they're all still fairly balanced. I mean, people could argue that Custodes are a lot more powerful than some of the other armies, yes, but they're also vastly more expensive in points. Yeah. Um... Depends. Depends, yeah. on, depends on the army, depends on the edition. I think also the fact that they keep releasing new editions also resets that at some stage. Does, so, yeah. you know, when Tau came out, I think they came out in 6th edition? Yeah, 5th edition. 5th edition, edition. They were vastly overpowered compared to all the other armies. Yeah. Then a new edition came along and suddenly they were dragged more in line. Yeah. Well, let's get controversial now. Because in speaking about GW, of course, the, the real big news in GW in the past month on the 40k side has been the launch of the new FAQ. Yes, so, which was late. Which was late. And, and basically, the reason behind this is that they said earlier on that they're going to do two updates a year. They'll do chapter approved of the year, and they will do a major fact in the middle of the year with minor facts, like was it two weeks or something after each codex comes out. Because we know, for example, with the codexes that they take time to go to the printer, to get shipped from wherever they're printed, to get shipped out to the stores. So by the time a codex comes out, uh, you know, probably the, the work on that codex is already several weeks, if not months, behind GW. So you know, they need to be able to respond to that sort of stuff quickly. And the, um, the thing I found with the FAQ was that they planned for it to come out right before, or right around the time of um, the big event, um, what's it called again now? Um, the Las uh, Vegas Open? No, it was, after, it was after the LBA. There was another big event. But um, in any case, um, they, they found that... I think what they expected was that you had these two major events in the US that were only about a month or so apart. And in the first event, there was a clear... You know, clear in front was Eldar, you know, the last final fist for Eldar. And they expected, okay, it's going to be the same outcome at the next event. At the next event, no... It had moved on to being now Tyranids and Blood Angels were sort of the, were the, were the key winners. And they sort of, I guess they, they felt that the whole meta had moved along in without them, so they needed to make sure they fe featured in the feedback from this most recent event in order to get their FAQ out. And that's what they did. Yeah. So, um, now the FAQ, I looked at it. I don't see problems with it. I, I, so I'm not a tournament player, so I don't see problems with it either. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we tend to be fluff players, so... The whole idea about mixing and matching armies to sort of... Uh, and, and you can still mix and match armies with attachments now as well. You just can't, like, ram a single assassin into an Imperial List, for example, without taking a separate Vanguard attachment and taking three, you know, or without, well, without breaking up you your... You could take it as an auxiliary detachment, it just cost you one command. Cost a command point, you're right. Which yeah. you now get more of, so what's the problem? Yeah, exactly. Um, the whole thing was that the the key change is that they, they, they brought in the smite rule with a couple of exceptions now that we spoke about in the past. Um, they confirmed the other, other key rules, but they've now done things like, um, on the beta rules, you've got the rule of three, where you can no longer use more than three of a single uh, data sheet. So this is to stop people who are using a whole stack of flying uh, hive tyrants. Uh, you've got the fact that you have to have 50% of your points value or power level on the board. So previously it was just 50% of your units, but I could dump a whole bunch of cheap troops on the board and put all my really powerful stuff into deep strike reserve. Now it's got to be half your actual points value on the board at the start of the game. Um, and I think the big one was the rule where they said that 
uh, units that can enter in the movement phase, like deep strike effectively, if they do that in the first turn, they can only enter into their own deployment zone. They can only, they, they can deploy on the board from the second turn onwards, but they basically tried to reduce the amount of deep strike and first turn charges. Yeah, so talking alpha, alpha strike. Yeah, town mana strikes, um, you know, the, the whole um, blood, blood letter bombs, this sort of stuff, you know. And now I'm, I'm a person who predominantly plays shootier armies. Yeah, so I've got Marines, uh, I've got, you know, more shooty Eldar list. Uh, like even my chaos list only has very limited sort of front front line deployment stuff. So the fact to me is all good, but there's a lot of people out there who play things like Blood Angels, uh, Blood Angels particularly. Like people are just basically saying, "Oh, I may as well put my Blood Angels back on the shelf now because they're no longer viable." Yeah, that's just pathetic. Mm. At the end of the day, they've got all the same units as normal Marines. So are all Marine players going to put their stuff back on the shelf because they're no longer viable? You just have to change the way you play your own. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's so much the... I don't think it's the model. It's more the stratagems. Yeah. You know, the, the, the stratagems give you a, a fast charge. It's like your, your wings... Your you can your still create a first-turn charging army with Blood Angels. It's just harder. Yeah. I mean, I, with Chaos, I can create a first-turn charge army. It's just a lot tougher. Yeah, I mean, and there are still things that you can do to put units on the board, like Deep Striking. So, for example, the Raven Guard or Alpha Region ability to deploy a unit somewhere on the board during the setup phase or scouts, for example, can still be deployed. Um, it's just not units that arrive as reserves can't, can't go into uh, the enemy deployment zone or outside your own deployment zone in the first turn. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've got a Blazers player in our immediate group and he liked the changes, but he's once again more of a fluff player. Yeah. Yeah, he made the very clear point of saying he doesn't believe that a Blood Angels army with Robert Gullman is a Blood Angels army yeah, because it's got <laughs> a non-Blood Angels in there. Sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, like I think that the the FAQ itself, I was quite happy with it. Uh, but once again, I'm like I'm not a tournament player, but and it comes down to once again talking about what we mentioned in the opening about when you try when you deliberately work around the rules to get a an outcome is that if you are going to look at using exploits in a game, you have to expect that if the game is being well developed, that you will lose access to that pretty quickly. Yeah. So the people that can play on a rewrite list every single time because the unit they like to use the most got nerfed, you know, maybe there's a reason <laughs> for that if, you, if you're the sort of person whose list constantly gets nerfed. It's not against you. They're not saying, hey, that, that, this, guy, this guy Bob over here, you know, he, 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 we don't like him. Let's make sure we always know what he likes. No, it just means that, you know, you're prone to using things that That's are exploitable. It's also dependent on the player style as well. Like, I'm a tyranny player. I haven't actually played my tyranny yet. Yeah, not in 8th edition, certainly. Not in 8th edition. But looking at the codex, I wouldn't have used Flyrant Spam anyway. I would have used um, Tyrant Guard, yeah. which are a completely ridiculous unit. For 200 and something points, I can have a unit armed with essentially LAS cannons that do not need to see the enemy yeah. and hit on three pluses. Okay, well, I can have three units of those, six guys in each unit. I can pop most enemy units with that without being even seen. Yeah. Why would I need tyrant? Five, you know, five flying hive tyrants. Yeah. I never got my opportunity to use the dodgy exploit of putting aggressors into the field with as Raven Guard and then deep striking strike to make them all roll like, you know, 140 D6, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with re ones. <laughs> there are always exploits out there. And They'll sit there until yeah. someone uses them in a tournament and it gets noticed. Then it'll be nerfed, and then someone will have to find another one. 
Yeah. It's like um, someone was saying the other day, and I, which on the thread that I read about, um, there's a wording problem with one of the stratagems. Yeah. It's used by chaos and demons in combination. You can give your warlord or characters special items, artifacts, but they're not called artifacts. Yeah. One's hell-forged war gear and the other one's chaos artifacts. Well, each card says that they can only have one chaos artifact, can only have one hell-forged war gear item. doesn't say they can only have one of... Both, it says they have one of each, yeah. So people have now discovered that you can combine them. It's broken completely against the spirit of the rule. Yeah. But as written, we well, you know about the whole thing with people stacking stacking abilities on Dark Eldar now. How they you know put put them, put them on a vehicle and give the vehicle a trait, and then the vehicle trait goes to the passengers who keep their own trait as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah I remember there was also the one the tower strategy, which says that units that have not moved in the previous turn get this benefit. If it's the first turn of the game, have I not moved in the previous turn or not? Yeah, there's the ambiguity <laughs> there. So. Do I need to have had a previous turn or not move for it to have worked? Because, you know, and, and I spoke about this at my local GW store and he's like, yeah, I would say that you can do move because the first turn of the game is everyone's just turned up. Yeah, you know, they weren't standing here for half an hour waiting for someone to say, hey, let's, let's fight, you know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Could be, yeah. I'd say that if they're playing a defensive game and they have a defensive gun line waiting for a charge. Well, but there, are very, there are very few forces in 40k that are without zeal. Yeah, so, that's true, that's true. It's, it's, I'm just trying to imagine, like, you know, a, a group of Marines facing off against, like, Chaos Marines or Demons and saying, no, no, wait for the commander to say charge, you know. Maybe we'll wait talk about it. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, they may want to parlay. <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, okay, so on the GW side, along with the FAQ, we also saw the launch of the Necrons and uh, Drakari or, or Dark Eldar book. I think that it's been a long time between things for the, for the Drakari as well. Oh, definitely. And I think it's a very interesting book. Um, in the form of the fact that um, it really sort of goes against the standard force war uh, because that's the way they work. They are sort of lots of small raiding groups that work together. So you've now got this benefit for taking multiple patrols or you know uh, or multiple small detachments to get the benefit of only taking a big group. So I, I quite like the way they've done the Chikari as well. Oh, definitely. The only thing I would have liked to have seen is a stratagem that gets given to your opponent if you do that, yeah. where you can make it so that one cabal backstabs another yeah. one, because that is just <laughs> so dark. Elder. You know, you can make it worth, like, three command points and you can force a unit to shoot another friendly unit. Yeah. But, you know. Look, I, look I've been looking at picking up Dark Elder for a while, and I, just after it came out, I picked up the two, I picked up the old Star Collecting Box, the new Star Collecting Box, and I've managed to find a copy of Games of Kimura, and that's like... 1100, 200 points worth of models just there. You know, I've, I've now filled it out with some flyers and some extra witches and that sort of stuff. So. Bloody Dark Elder flies. <laughs> uh, and also, we've got uh, next week is coming uh, Death Watch. Uh, and then same, in May as well, we've got Harlequins. And then looks like June we'll see the update to Imperial Knights. Yeah. And hopefully the new Knights. So I know with Death Watch, what people are looking forward to is being able to use Primaris in Death Watch. And I sort of thought, like, oh, how does that work? Because the whole thing with Death Watch is that, like, the armor they have is artifice army, the armor that they give back to the Death Watch when they return to their regular chapters. Well, and you know, They'll make some more. Yeah, it hasn't got all the history that the regular Death Watch armor has because it's brand new. So? Well, they just take, they, they, they let it out today, just make it so that it's 
<laughs> a bit bigger. So it'll fit the new big guys. Yeah. Uh, take it down to the local supermarket, get, yeah. get some, some old nonna to, to, to fix it up. That's <laughs> it. Oh, you're getting fat. And also, I mean, when the heart of it come out, they've, they've, we've seen previews of this new uh, web portal, uh, web gateway, web, webway, webway gate as a model. Yeah. And a lot of, almost every single bit of terrain I've we see has its own special rules. So I'd to see what they do with the webway gates as far as rules go too, where it like, gives you another way of moving around the board. So, um, so that's on the, the 40k. So, oh, sorry, what I will say from GW as well is, first off, we've seen... Um, hints that Titanicus, you know, that we're going to see a, a new a new Titan based game yep. in the future, and the scale they spoke about is a bit larger than the old. Yeah, so the old scale used to be six mil, the new scale is going to be eight mil. So yeah. all your old epic stuff would be completely useless. Yeah, but they're saying that, so like a Reaver a Reaver Titan would be about the same size as a Dreadnought, yep. so a bit bigger than the old Reavers as well. So, yeah. uh, and also it, there's rumours going around that they're going to redo Battlefleet Gothic as well. Yeah. Yeah, rumours about that float around all the time. They also released the army building app. Oh, yeah. Um, power com, level com, only. Combat, combat list, what it's called. Com, yeah, um, it's power level only at the moment. Roster. No points cost, but I think that's probably okay. I mean, the game is designed now more for power level rather than points. Points is more for your match tournament play. Yeah. I, mean, if you I think just... a lot of people still play with points, even though in just casual games, because it's what they're used to. I just, I really wish they'd do with 40k what they did with Age of Sigma, where you had a lot more sort of freely accessible stuff in terms of rules, and then, you know, the app for Age of Sigma is, you know, so much better than Combat Roster is in terms of what you can do with it, and to the point that, like, the people doing Battlescribe just gave up on doing Age of Sigma after the Age of Sigma app came out, whereas for, I think that Battlescribe will still become the predominant methodology of list building for tournaments in 40k, because Combat Roster just isn't there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's all it's good for is adding up your power level, which I can do with a calculator. So, you know, and showing somebody that that's what it's equal to. Uh, I mean, also talking about Age of Sigma, um, we saw the list of the launch of Internet Deepkin in the last month. So, CLs, you know, some nice models. I think you know, I would hate to try and paint some of those models like painting like the sort of the, the roiling water and surf. Yeah. You know, I think you'll just get very good at green and blues. Yes, exactly right. And they brought new colours out for it too. They had like new flesh colours for the for the deepkin as well. So I just I, I know that yeah, you know, I'm sure Dungan's me working overtime on the TV to get painting guides for all the various sea based options that they have. Um, all right, so onto the computer gaming side. So I was in my local EB Games or GameStop for those of you familiar with that brand. Uh, yesterday I saw that Inquisitor Martyr has a release date later on this month. Um, so yeah, be... I think it's been moved. Has it? Already, yeah. Okay. Originally it was supposed to come out the 11th of this month. Yep. So that's 11th of May. Yep. I think it's been moved already. Okay. Right. Delayed. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned it last show, but there has been a formal, a formal announcement that they're doing a Necromunda Underhive Wars computer game. The same people that did, um, did uh, Warline. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah, that's been in development for a while now. I'm actually really looking forward to yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. There'll be, there's been some more, um, footage hitting the screens now from Mechanicus, um, which looks like it's going to be sort of an XCOM-esque strategy game. So it's got, it, it's very much the Adeptus Mechanicus versus Necron. So it sort of picks up the plot line where, Forge Bane left off to a degree, so yep. they really so they are certainly hamming up the whole um, Blackstone plot element this this year as well, and moving into probably into the next year too with all the yeah. I think on. Blackstone is going to be a big plot element moving forward with mm. all the games. MacGuffin. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, unobtainium. <laughs> so that's it for the news. 
Um, except for what happened earlier today, which I will now discuss in the main section. Okay. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. So, only a few hours ago, we saw the, uh, as, it is, as we're recording, I should say, uh, we saw the live Twitch stream of Ross running Wrath and Glory for the team of uh, Bell Boss Souls. Yes. Uh, and uh, as, a, as it stands right now, it will be up on YouTube in, I think they said about two or three days' time. So we'll make sure we link to that when it comes up. Uh, and we won't go into too much detail right now because we want to be a spoiler for that. But we'll talk about some of the stuff that we did see there. Uh, it was a special module that Ross wrote for the team from Bell Boss Souls, which was called Box of Sorrow. Uh, and it was nice to see that, that Ross also incorporated some unique elements about Belvoir Souls into the into the game. So we had four players. We saw a Inquisitorial Acolyte, a Minister and Priest, a White Scar Tactical Marine, and a Commissar for our group. Yeah, so a nice mixed group. Uh, yeah, I was more interested in following how they went with the system to see what we what we learn about the system. Um, some of my interesting takeaways from it included things like the fact that keywords play a, a decent part in the game, you know, so it looks like characters have a talent-based system similar to what you, how you had talents in uh, the older RPGs where you get special abilities that can be utilised. So, for example, the Minister and Priest had the ability to sort of sprout rhetoric and boost his, his followers or, his, you know, the other players, but it was limited by the Imperium keyword. So... Uh, he was an Imperial character. His inspiring tone only worked with Imperial characters. So if there was an Eldar in the group, and the Imperial... He would have been inspired about how <laughs> the humans should purge all Xenos. Exactly right, yeah. He either wouldn't care or he'd be offended by it. You know? So I thought that was quite nice. Uh, plus, Ross also explained in the game that uh, it affects things like what you can acquire. You know, So even now to the point that it's not just Imperium, like you know, a regular Space Marine may have a difficulty acquiring a Primaris Bolt Pistol. Um, it, yeah, it's even down to the, some of the gears down that, that unique as far as the keywords go. Um, so I thought that was, that was quite nice. You know, some, some of the things give benefits against other things with the same keyword. Uh, I got to see, I, I often look at game systems, how it goes with cooperative skill tests. So we obviously saw the system where, um, you, know, you roll your pool, you're looking for fours, fives, or sixes. Fours and fives count once. Sixes cost, count twice. Um, sixes or exalted icons can be shifted if they are no longer required to achieve the um, difficulty number in order to get bonuses to what you know, you can learn more, do more, achieve it faster, etc. Uh, and we saw the rule where uh, another player can help by basically they make a role and they can shift their successes uh, over to help the the main actor in the in the action as well. Yeah. Uh, we saw some combat in it too. Uh, certainly some. Um, Pretty high in weaponry, including things like a, I think the game. Well, I'm not going to spoil it, but there was, there was a vortex grenade got pulled out at one point. So <laughs> you know, you know, when you get the vortex grenades out, it's getting pretty serious. Yeah. Uh, and and um, quite a good sort of investigative plot as well. You know, in terms of um, identifying who is the the person behind it, and then how do we actually deal with what they've done? Uh, we saw the use of the uh, campaign cards. So these cards basically were. Uh, things that a player could do once per game in order to get some sort of benefit. If they, if they, as long as they did X, they achieved Y. And I'm guessing they were sort of dished out randomly at the start of the game as well. So I, I guess sort of plot leaders there. Um, one of the players pointed out that the character sheets they had had some narrative suggestions. You know, so 
talk about a time when X happened, uh, which is something that they could do in order to get to grow those uh, those wrath and glory resources. So uh, I, I guess almost like role playing hints and like the player playing the white scars base marine was well familiar with 40k, but not as familiar with white scars, and so it was helpful to have that sort of character direction there in order to help him, you know, exemplar the role and fit better into the into the game as well. So, um, yeah, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's worth checking out on uh, on YouTube when it becomes available, and we will link it. Uh, and we're really sort of in the um, the homeward stretch now, because uh, we know that there is going to be the ability to play the game at um, Origins, which is in the second week of June. We know the 16th of June which is only sort of a month away, is Free RPG Day, where the, the Free RPG Day module will be available. Uh, and then August is Gen Con, where they're saying, you know, that they pretty much confirm the plan is to have the book available for, uh, for purchase at Gen Con. So, you know, without too much more to go into, I think it's probably, we're getting towards the pointy end of this product release, and I'm hopeful that, you know, within a, uh, you know, by the end of this year, we'll be able to actually talk to people about some real stuff. Yeah, so yeah, we'll be able to... We'll start. actually have some meat to put back in the yeah, show. Yeah, we'll be able to talk about building characters and how to use certain systems and talk more about the settings. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's been fun covering the news while it happens as well, but I know that we sort of, we've been talking a lot more about the miniatures war game than the role-playing game, which like, just in order to pad out the, the shows. But uh, don't get me wrong, I've been enjoying playing the miniatures, miniatures game again as well, but... Uh, uh, yeah, we'd like to get back into doing some more of the, the role playing side too. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Um, that's really on the, on the main discussion. So I just want to talk about the fact that that Twitch stream was available and to bring attention if you didn't, haven't already seen it. Uh, there was a chance for Q&A at the end. I actually jumped in with a question about keywords as well. Uh, but of course, the, the obligatory questions, can we play Necrons? Can we play Tyranids? Um, can we have mixed groups? That was probably the big question. Can we have, Groups that are not just Imperial or not just Eldar, and of course the answer is yes, subject to uh, the framework, you know, the concept that my game as a GM is about X, you know, so I want to play, you know, Inquisitorial Agents. Okay, Xenos maybe not as good as if I was doing a Rogue Trader and their crew, you know, and completely out if I'm doing something like, you know, a Group of Black Templars, you know. I see no reason why I can't play my Gene Sealer Pure Strain as an Inquisitorial Acolyte. <laughs> pure Strain is actually like, they're the full gene stores, aren't they? Yeah, yes. That's right. Yeah, it's not... hey, if you've got a, a, a voluminous rope, sure. <laughs> yeah, Go around like... and we question everyone and then I implant them afterwards. jeez. <laughs> uh, Alright, let's move on to closing out the show. So at the end of the show, we tend to go through any feedback we received uh, in the time between our last two shows. I actually have had some feedback. Um, we had a, a very nice listener uh, actually write to us about our audio quality because it's been a bit up and down in recent shows as we move between different devices and different locations. I'm sure there's going to be a bit of an echo in this show because, just because of the nature of the room that we're in today. And as I mentioned before, the heavy breathing from the dog. Um, but we've either had previous shows where it's just been completely terrible audio quality. And uh, this particular listener is a uh, person with good audio knowledge who gave us some suggestions on how to improve the audio and actually sent us a couple of edited examples. So I still mean I need to reply to him uh, and sort of ask some questions and make some comments too to sort of get some advice. But uh, I've just been with all the travel, obviously, I, I sort of got the emails noted that they were there 
and uh, haven't had a chance to really respond. And there's been a couple of other comments as well. Uh, plus all the feedback we've had on the Facebook page about the list of archetypes too. Uh, but, you know, if you do want to contact the show, I still encourage you to do so. Our website is www.grim.podcast.com. I'm going to read it again. Please don't bother join the website. There is like a sign up for an account thing there. Um, that's just part of the website code that we use. You can put in an application, but we'll never get approved or denied. We'll just sit there. I, I still get three or four a month on top of the 50 or 60 spam ones I get. Um, but uh, the website's there. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grim.podcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grim.podcast. Our Twitter account is at grim.podcast. And our email is show at grim.podcast.com. So, quick question. Yep. Did you ever decide on a platform to put your mo- pictures of models up on? Um, now lean toward Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. So, so the, the reasons for my selection there were that um, other people use it for that particular methodology. I mean, they all use it in some way, but a lot of people sort of regularly read towards Instagram to use for that reason. Two is that it allows me to do better sorting of like, okay, these are my different armies I'm working on and stuff. And three is that it's one that allows you to view the images without having to join the site. So if someone just wants to look at the thing. So um, yeah, so what might be there if you don't follow the Facebook pages, I've been doing a lot of painting recently trying a lot more techniques in terms of things like weathering and chipping and everything. And I've been wanting to sort of put some of my model pictures online where you can see them. Um, not quite ready for that yet, but uh, once I get a little sort of photo booth set up so I can photograph the models better, I will create an Instagram account to put it onto and I'll share it if you want to see what I'm painting. And you, you always want Mike's painting too because Mike is also a good artist. Um, so I need to either, you need to set your own photo booth up or, you know, or, or, or bring your stuff into my place so you can put it on there as well. Yeah, yeah I suppose. Yeah. And then I should actually paint some of the scenery, so I can actually... Actually, yeah. I should probably also actually finish a model. <laughs> have lots of things that are half done. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty well at finishing big models right now. I'm still terrible at finishing squads. So, you know, it, I tend to be... Like, like The last two squads I've tried to do, I've, okay, I've done like... They've all been base-coded, I've done all of one colour, then I've made all the next colour, and I've gone, I'm just going to finish one of these models just to make sure I'm happy with how it's going to look in the end. And I finish that model, and then I don't touch that squad again. So I've got all these, I've got these squads that have a single done model, and like everybody else is like, you know, base coated plus maybe one or two extra colours. So it's terrible. I know. I, I'm a terrible person. You should be ashamed of myself. Yes. Yeah, but I'm happy with how some of my painting outcomes. So I want to get them online to share them because I, I like looking at other people's paint jobs online, and hopefully people will like looking at mine too. And then when, when we do some more gaming, we'll also try and no, I want to try and get some more photographs of my games once the scenery is painted up. And I get a nice tabletop as well. I want to get one of those ones from GameMap.eu. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's the show. We did ramble a bit. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, we, I would like to try and get another show in before I go away to the US between my national travel and my international travel. Uh, and then obviously I'll have a show covering things at, uh, at Origins as well. Uh, as we steam towards 100 episodes. Still, still a few to go. But uh, Hopefully you'll join us again next episode. I hope you had a good time today. Mike, thank you once again for your involvement. Thank you. And we will catch you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Ulysses North America. One of 40,000, Wrath and Glory, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Deathwatch, Black Crusade, Only War, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop. Ulysses North America is a trademark of Ulysses Median and Spiel Distribution GmbH. All other materials and trademarks are their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music was composed by Jens Kulstoffer and is used under license.